Uh, it's a word we don't use very often, zeal. It's a word I like, but we don't use it very often, the word zeal or zealous. We maybe use the word passionate a lot more. That's kind of a synonym for that. We talk about people that are passionate. Or I think even if you talk about zeal or passion, kind of even go further and you think about someone that's a fanatic, that kind of gets at the same thing. And, and we use that word in different connotations, maybe with sports. Uh, you've got someone that's a fanatic. Uh, and this is someone that is destroying a, a, a raider's puppy or something. I don't know. Hopefully it's just a stuffed animal and not a real puppy. Uh, or this one's for Dion because he loves the raiders. Uh, we've got, <laughs> this is actually Dion right there, but we've got um, people that are fanatics, right? I don't even know. He's got a bunch of heads on him and he's just ready to go, right? This is someone that's a fanatic. They're all in. They're all into their team. You don't wonder what's in their heart, right? They are all in on their team and on their people. They are a fanatic. They are zealous. They are passionate. Or sometimes it's when you think about people that are crazy collectors of certain things, right? Uh, this maybe you're like, wow, I, I need to add some of this to my collection or Beanie Babies or whatever, right? People that are all into their collection, and there's all sorts of kind of crazy collectors. This guy, you know, has got all sorts of Simpsons stuff and people that are fanatics. They're all in. I always think about, I don't know if you've seen any uh, documentaries or old pictures of people when the Beatles kind of were, were coming to uh, America or even in, when they were in the UK as well. And there's all these pictures of people just freaking out. And if you look at these people, they are I mean, it's crazy, right? And they are just fainting. And they have so many times the, amp the police had to be called and the ambulances had to be called. And this is the police trying to hold these people back. I love this guy who's just got the strap in his mouth. And he's just, you've got a mob of fanatical people that are zealous and passionate and all in on their thing. Or sometimes uh, this is actually recent. There's brands that maybe you are passionate about. This guy, this has just happened a few weeks ago. He got a giant Subway tattoo on the back of him, and uh, he will eat free subs for life, which that does not seem worth it at all, you know? <laughs> maybe if it was Chick-fil-A or even Taco Bell, but Subway? I mean, nah, I don't think so. But he's passionate, right? He's all in on Subway. Or sometimes if you take the word zeal, the, the, uh, another word when you're describing a person for that is a zealot, right? And a lot of times that word zealot is used negatively to kind of disdain another side of an issue. I typed in zealot into the news and it talks about the Democrats' new climate bill abandons green zealotry. So it's saying there's people that care about the environment, maybe they're green, but then there's green zealotry. It's, man, they're, they're so all into it. That's what we use the word zealot to describe. Or COVID zealots are spreading a campaign of fear-filled, or the GOP-courted anti-abortion zealots. So it's saying there's people that maybe you have this opinion, but then there's people that are zealots, and it's used negatively by one side to kind of criticize another side. And then this one, if low-level zealots can be prosecuted for January 6th, blah, 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 then, you know, who else can be prosecuted? I just love this term, low-level zealot. Like, I want to know if that guy introduces himself as that. Ah, I'm just a low-level zealot. Nice to meet you, you know? But we use that term sometimes to say, okay, maybe you've got your opinion on something. Maybe you think about something, but you're too into it. Uh, Titus says this, and this is towards the end of the passage that we're going to be looking at. He says that God has created us, a people, for his own possession, eager, or that word is zealous. This is actually the word zealot in Greek. 
that a people for his own possession, eager to do good works, or it literally says a zealot for good works. That's what that word is. So God is saying that he has actually designed you to be a zealot, to be a fanatic, to be a radical, to be passionate, to be, I think eager doesn't really do it justice. It is the word zealot. That is what God has designed us, you, to be. Zealot, zealous for good works. What if that was true? What if you were a zealot for good Think about we're in this series called Living Good and talking about the good life that God has for us. What if you were a zealot for good in all the various spheres that you are in, in your family, in your marriage, at your work, wherever it is? What if you were a zealot for good? What would that look like? What if you were a zealot for God? Don't worry, by the way, I'm not going to like try to charge us to go do something crazy, but what if you were a zealot? For God, what if that was true of you? I don't. Would you paint Bible verses on your belly, or paint your face, or have the twelve apostles, you know, heads on you, or something? I don't. I mean, it probably wouldn't look like that. But if you were a zealot for your faith, for God, for good, it says that. That listen, I don't know what your vision of faith is of Christianity. If it's just you know, I kind of want to be a good person. I kind of want to live a good life and make sure I do the right thing and. Don't kill anybody. Like, if that's kind of what your vision is of faith, he's saying, no, God actually has so much more. God wants you to be a fanatic, a zealot. The Beatles shouldn't get all the glory. The Raiders, the Broncos, football, whatever it is, like, that shouldn't get all the glory. God is saying, I want you to be a zealot, a zealot for good works. Now, listen, the truth is, oftentimes, that kind of passion or that kind of desire or that hunger, that's not in us. We may be apathetic. We may be just kind of tired and just trying to get by. We might be just feel kind of dry in our faith. Uh, we may do good things. We may actually do good works, but they are coming at this level. They're not actually coming from this passion, this zeal. We might do things, but it's kind of a, a drudge. It's kind of out of pure obligation. What if you had zeal? What if you were eager? What if that was true of you? You know, whenever you've been passionate about something, whenever you have been zealous about something, it, there's a lot of energy that flows out of you, and, and things actually become easier in a lot of ways. When you're passionate about something, you don't have to try super hard to do it. You don't have to convince yourself. It just kind of flows. You don't have to convince those teenage girls to love the Beatles, right? You, don't have to, you really should love the Beatles. It's a good thing to do. They, it just flows out of them. When we are zealous, when we are passionate, it makes a lot of the things that we're called to actually easier. It makes the good easier. It, it also gives us energy and it, and it produces things. When you've got zeal and passion, it actually leads to change. If you think about areas in your life that if you had zeal for good, it, it would create fruit. It would lead to things actually happening. Changes would take place. Things around you, things in you would happen. There would be progress where you want to see progress happen. So I don't know today kind of where you are when you think about all these things. You might feel stuck and go, yeah, I want to kind of live the good that God has for me, but you might feel stuck. You might feel just kind of apathetic and not really care. You may also feel like, yeah, I am living good. I am trying to live the good that God has for me, but 
you might not feel very zealous. It might feel like, okay, this is hard. This is a challenge. <clears throat> babe, do you have water? Or someone, some babe, can some babe get me water? <clears throat> Sorry, I don't know. I got a little thing. Um, <clears throat> you, wherever you are, what God wants to do is to give you a passionate heart. God wants to give you a passionate heart. God wants to, in the areas where he is calling you to live good, this is what God's desire is for you. A passionate heart. To be a zealot. Okay, That's what God's desire is. So we're going to go through this and look at what it takes to have that. And in order to have this zealous or this passionate heart, it will take knowing what the good life is, the picture of the good life, and we will also see why and what happens, the pool of the good life, and then we will see the power of the good life. Thanks, babe. Um, <clears throat> I knew I was going to say that as soon as he, I saw him get it. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, sorry. So let's look at first what the picture of the good life is. Let's look at what the picture of the good life is. What does it look like to live the good? To be zealous about something, you've got to know first, what does it even look like? And what he's going to do in this letter. Remember Paul, if you were here last week, he is writing to Titus, and Titus is the pastor organizing all these different churches. And he is telling him, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want to be happening in these churches. And it really speaks to us as a church as well. And what he is going to do is go through different groups and different kind of stages of life. And so hopefully there's something in there for each of us that can encourage us and build us up and probably annoy us and bother us, okay? So we'll all get a chance to be built up and offended today. Here is what he says. He starts with this, but you are to proclaim these things consistent with sound teaching. Sound teaching is the gospel. It is God's word that he has given. It is the teaching of, about, what Jesus has done, who he is, what he says to us. And he starts with saying, but you, because if you were here last week, he talked about false teachers that were teaching false messages that were not what God has for us. And this is an important starting point to remember. I can't recap everything from last week, but we have to remember, this is so important. And if you're here today, this is a brief synopsis from last week. You have to remember this. There are false messages all the time being spoken to us, telling us the vision of the good life all the time. There are religious teachers, there are cultural teachers all the time telling us this is the vision of the good life. This is what it means if you're a young man or a young woman or an older man or an older woman. This is the vision of the good life. And there are temptations at each stage and each role in our life to follow a different vision, which is why he starts with, but you are to proclaim these things because there are other things that are being proclaimed to us and taught to us all the time. So that is where he starts, which is important because if you expect your life to just fit in to the world, to the culture around you, it's not going to. And if it looks identical to the culture and world around you, then you probably have to say, if there's not a contrast, I'm probably not letting God's vision and God's word of what the good life is actually shape me. I'm probably just being shaped by whatever 2022's vision of the good life is. So he says, but you, which is why it's so key for us to always be asking, and to be, oftentimes I will ask this question to people, how are you thinking about that 
biblically? Or how are you thinking about that according to what God says? Because so often it's a different formation than what we are hearing. So that's how he starts. And then he's going to go into several different groups, starting with the older men. He says, older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. He says essentially that there's two categories of what they're supposed to be, mature and vibrant in their faith. And this call by itself, this call to older men means that old doesn't equal godly. Sometimes, and especially because historically our church has been younger, I'm thankful that we're starting to see uh, some more maturity and some more older men and older women, but historically there's been a lot of younger folks, and sometimes younger people think if you are older, that automatically means you're godly. It doesn't. It might mean that you've lived a long time the wrong way. It might mean you've lived a long time set in certain immaturities and sins that have never changed or been challenged. So that's a warning and an encouragement. It's a warning for those of you that are younger not to just equal old equals godly. If Paul is saying, older men, here's what I'm calling you to, that means that some of them might not be there. It also means that if you are older, that there's always room to grow and change, no matter how far gone you've been and no matter how far awesome you've been. There's always room to grow and to change and mature. And he says, if this is the call, think about then what the vision for older men often is. Now, obviously, this is 2,000 years ago. Their culture is going to be different from ours. I was trying to kind of figure out what is, like, what does our culture speak to older men? What's the vision that it has for them? And I typed in older men into Google Images, and I was like, uh, this is pulling up things that I wasn't intending to do. So I stopped that track. And if you just think about um, what the call is, then you can also see, so here's what maybe some of the inclinations or temptations or immaturities are. It might be that instead of being self-controlled and worthy of respect and sensible, that there's actually kind of a criticalness, there's a grumpiness, there's, there's just kind of a complainingness about life. If instead of this vibrancy, this soundness and faith and love and endurance, there oftentimes is just a pursuit of comfort and ease. I mean, oftentimes that is the vision if you're older. It's like, I want to get to the end of my life and rest. I want to retire. I want to be done. I want to kind of just disengage. He says, if that's what you feel, if that's what you're tempted towards, if that's what your vision is, even of what the good life is, he says that doesn't have to be the case. And he gives us these two categories. The first kind of about maturity, to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible. Those really kind of speak in a lot of ways to the same thing. Saying it's someone that isn't just free with their life, doing whatever they want, thinking whatever they want, saying whatever they want. Rather, they have a life that has matured. And so they've got a prioritization of God. That is what it would mean to be respectable. To be sensible means that they're, they're someone that you can look to as an example. They're not just kind of all over the place. They're just doing what they want. To be self-controlled is not just that they have great disciplines. They mow their lawn every you know, Tuesday at four or something. But it's a self-control of a life that's oriented towards God. So there is a maturity that they have. They think wisely about life. They prioritize God. 
And then there's this vibrancy, this soundness in faith, love, and endurance, or faith, love, and hope. That's a kind of Christian trio that's all throughout the Bible, particularly Paul's letters, this faith, love, and hope, or faith, love, and endurance, which would be the fruit of hope. So there's this, there's this maturity or vibrancy in Christian faith that they are an example of what it means to be a Christian when it comes to God and when it comes to others. You look at their life and you see this is somebody that has a soundness, a rootedness in their faith. They love God and they love people. They, they are operating in love. They are shared. You look at their life and it's sound in this way. And endurance, endurance really speaks to this idea of getting, to the, getting you know, to the end of your career and then kind of tapping out and retiring. He says, no, there's a call to endurance. A call to be in the game, to stay in the game. And I don't mean your career. I mean your faith and love and Christianity and your role in the church and in this world that God has given to you. That you engage, you endure. There's not a point that you kind of go, okay, I've paid my dues, I'm done, I'm tired, but there's endurance. That's why the call to old men particularly ends with endure. Stay in the game. I had a mentor when I was younger that was... Uh, I think in his 70s at that time, now he's in his 80s, and I just, he, he still, I looked him up, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I, I looked him up, and he's still actively involved in doing things. He's still ministering to people. He's an older pastor. He's still coaching younger pastors. He's still writing blogs and leading, and it's like, man, that's, he's in his 80s and hasn't said, all right, I'm just going to buy one of these boats, and I'm done. He has endured. He's still in the game. And that's what God's call is. That's what the church needs, is older men that are mature and that are a vibrant example of Christian faith. So he speaks to the older men first. Then he speaks to older women. And he says, in the same way, which means that the call is going to be similar and the temptation is going to be similar. Listen, the longer that you live, and you know, I'm... I'm, I'm not a young man, and I'm not an old man, so I'm a middle man, whatever that is, you know. But the longer that you live, the longer you live, the more suffering you have, the harder that you see life is, the more, see, the more things you see wrong with life. And the temptation for that can be then to be more critical, to complain about more things, to, with suffering, withdraw more, to disengage more to pull back more. And what he says is, that is not what God has for you. He says to older women that their call is to be reverent, and this word actually is used of, essentially what it means is to be a priestess, to be temple-like, to be someone that you look at and say, they are devoted to God, that you can look at their life, and it is something that shows they know God. They enjoy God. There's a, a life that is saying, here's what it looks like to worship God, to know God. That's the calling that he gives. Don't disengage. Don't pull back. Rather, your life, you actually have a sacred, listen, maybe, maybe some of you older ladies, and you might not want to think about yourself in that way, but if you don't have young kids at home, then especially in this time, even if you're like, 35, you're an older woman, okay? If you didn't have a baby at 13, then you're an older woman, okay? You might feel like, my time's done. There's no use for me. You know, it's, it's time for the young 
He says, you have, a, you have a sacred calling to be a priestess. You have a sacred calling to show people this is what it looks like to know God, to worship God. My 78-year-old neighbor uh, is an example of this to me. She has one coming up, but she regularly goes camping in Cherry Creek State Park or other places to do like two, three-day-long prayer retreats. And I promise you, she's not doing that to pray for, you know, uh, her cat or a good job or a man one day. It's, I mean, she's, she is praying for others. She's praying for the needs around her. She's praying for our world and people and dedicating herself to prayer. She is an example of an older woman who's almost 80, but is saying, I'm not done. I could, I could be crippled in my bed and I can still pray for people. There's a priestess mentality. Instead of, there might be a temptation to, he gives two specific things, to slander and excessive drinking. If you think about that, sometimes the, if you have kind of a stereotypical non-priestess woman in your mind, it can be kind of this, I mean, there's like this country line, I can't remember all of it from a country song, but all the biddies in the barbershop, you know, talking about blah, 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 blah. And you kind of think about, okay, sometimes there is this tendency for older women to be critical, to complain, to talk about, to gossip, or sometimes to excessive drinking, or maybe, maybe that's not even the thing. It might just be to uh, just escape. Maybe if he wrote this today, he might say excessive Facebooking or excessive whatever, just kind of leisure and pleasure. And again, I'm just kind of done. It's just this comfort mentality instead of I'm in. There can be, as you get older, for older women or older men, a, I've lived a long time, so I see everything that's wrong now. Kind of think of grumpy old men, or you think of grumpy old women, and they, I see everything wrong. Or to, I just want to relax, drink, play, I'm done. Paul says, that's not what God has for you. He actually says that not slaves to excessive drinking, or I would say even to excessive pleasures and comforts, that, that there is, it, it actually traps you. You might think you're free, and just, but it traps you in this smallness instead of still to the end of your life a bigness that God has for you. And instead, what he says is they are to teach what is good so they may encourage the young women. See, this is a posture that actually says God has done certain things in your life. God has worked in certain ways in your life. And if you are a godly older women, woman, then what you should be able to do is not hoard what he's done, but to give that out. When you come towards the older years of your life, the mentality should not be, God's done so much in my life, now it's time for me to rest. It should be, God's done so much in my life, and now I want to give it to others. I want to invest it. I want to use. I want to teach what is good. I want to encourage and build up the younger women around me. This isn't a specific role or a title. It's just that you are in relationship, that you're actively involved. Listen, we have a lot of younger women in our church. We have a lot of moms with young babies and just getting started, and it's hard. It's hard. And if the older women in our church said, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to take it as my role to encourage. I'm going to take it as my role to serve, to invest in. I, listen, I'm not signing you up for anything, but I have thought, and Sarah, my wife and I have talked about, like, what if all these young moms in our church with babies were able, all the older women in our church said, we're going to come and we're just going to help. 
We're going to find ways to help you and serve you and make meals and teach and encourage and, and not some formal sign up to be an older encourager, but just I'm, I'm going to find younger moms and serve them and help them. That would be a huge gift. And if it never happens, then listen, young ladies, remember this sermon and do it 10 years from now or 20 years from now. If it never happens for you, then tag it along and say, I'm going to do that. So this is an action item, homework, ladies, for 20 years from now, okay, for some of you. You can wait to apply this sermon for 20 years. That's a, that's a nice day, right? You don't have to do anything today. <clears throat> he says to invest. There is no expiration date on God's usefulness for you. There is no expiration date on what God wants to do through you. You are still and called to be a priestess. Very important very needed in our church. Then he says to the younger women, so, so about the older women, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. What's the vision that younger women are often given in our culture? Again, I didn't Google younger women because I had learned my lesson from older men, so I didn't, look, I didn't Google that. Uh, but if you think about what the vision is for younger women in our culture, a lot of times it is to focus on yourself. So there might be terms like self-care, and if you look at all the different magazine covers, even if you're just in the store, it's all about either your diet or your fitness or what you can do to improve this or what you can do to improve that and what you can do to work on your emotional health and what you can do here. And a lot of times the vision that is presented is make sure you focus on, take care of yourself. That's often the vision that is presented of the good life. And what Paul says is, here's what is to be taught to the younger women. They are to love. That's the opposite. That is this outward focus. That is an out, and he's specifically to husbands and children, but it's this outward focus. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with self-care and doing, you know, there's good and healthy rest, and that might be a reaction to some negative things that have been said of just give, 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 and you never take time to actually work on the things that matter internally. So there's a lot of good that might be true in there, and yet, nevertheless, our calling and our focus should not be ourselves, but it should be to love. So for you younger women, which if, you're not an, if you don't want to classify yourself as an older woman, then you're a younger woman. That's probably most of you ladies. He says to have a focus on other people. He says, don't be so concerned about improving yourself, working on yourself, making sure you have all the right things for yourself. He says, actually, the calling is to love, to give to think about those around you that God has put there and to love. And he says, this is for husbands and children. Again, I think you can make it even broader than that. But so for those of you ladies, younger ladies that are married, what does it mean to love your husband? That could mean all sorts of things. It could mean a lot of different things. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Ask him this week. Ask him tomorrow or today. So I said you could wait 20 years, but not for this one. Your husband be like, okay, 20 years from now, how can I love you? How can I make sure we stay married? <clears throat> Ask him, how can I love you? 
How can I, he, he uses the word that they are to be kind and in submission to their husbands, which I don't have time to you know, teach a whole uh, thing on that. We've been talking about that in the marriage class. Uh, but there's a posture of deference and respect and encouragement to give to your husband. Ask him, how can I encourage you? How can I, how can I respect you? How can I love you? Ask him some of those questions this week. Bring those to him. Then he talks about loving your kids. Again, that's a huge category. What could that mean? I don't encourage you to ask your kids, how can I love you? Because the answer will just be candy, okay? Or uh, TV. Those will be the two answers you get. So don't necessarily ask your children those questions. But here's the temptation, okay? I know this from observation. I know this from uh, talking to many of you. The temptation oftentimes is to, when you have kids, especially younger kids, is to find a way to make things easier. And I get that. It's hard. But love often means not just doing what's easy, but what is most important. Love is giving what is best to our kids. So that might mean, actually, it would be a lot easier to just say, sit at this TV for the next 10 hours, and then I'll come talk to you. That might be really easy, but it's not love. It might be really easy to just say, here, do whatever you want. And it might be a, a lot harder to say, let's sit down and talk about Jesus in the Bible together. And yet that's love. Love is we are investing in our children. We are training our children. We are doing what is best for them, not what's just easy or best for us. So I want to encourage you, many of you younger women, you are at home, either working from home or with your children at home, working with them. And I'm not saying it's easy, but love your children. Love your children. Not just do what is easy for your children. And then he says to them also to have, uh, he kind of gives these other three things, self-controlled, pure, and workers at home. Self-control. Often that is something that younger women need. Particularly, again, this is not all. This is kind of the context is in the home because he's talking about husbands and children. But again, this could be applied to everybody, uh, all younger women. That a lot of times life is chaotic. And sometimes we just submit to the chaos and just say, life is crazy. Instead of saying, okay, what does it mean to actually be able to enter in and seek to control in a good way? to actually find ways to manage and help things go the way that it should go instead of just submitting to the chaos. Pure is really just referring to our life and heart and devotion to God, which again, either if you are a young mom with children, a young married who just got her main squeeze husband, or a young woman looking for her main squeeze, Googling older men in Google Images, <laughs> Pure means your focus is first and foremost on God, that you don't ever let that go away, that your heart is, I am directed towards him, not other affections, not other things, but him. That's what he, he wants you. He wants your heart. And then it says workers at home, which doesn't, I mean, maybe he was prophesying post-COVID that we all work at home uh, or it really just doesn't mean that a woman can't work outside of the home. Again, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't like people were clocking into the office. It wasn't like that. But it does mean that there is a sphere that is valued in your home. It does mean that to manage and to take care of your home deeply matters to God. 
that that's not something that, and for many of you that do that, that's not a second-class thing. That is something that God says, this actually deeply matters. The care of children, the managing of all the different things that can happen inside of here, that there is a responsibility that God gives to younger women, wives and moms, to say, I'm giving, it doesn't, this, don't take that, okay, so that means all the household chores, are your, that, that's not what it means, but there means, there should be this desire to say, this is a sacred sphere that God's given me, and I'm going to take care of it. This is a sacred sphere that God's given me, and I'm going to manage it. I'm going to use it as a place of ministry and mission and blessing. I'm going to use it as a place of training and love for what's most important. I'm going to use it as a place where I actually serve and honor God here. So that's an important calling that he gives to younger women. Is that your focus? All these things. To love, to have self-control and a purity and a work at home. Is this your focus? Are you growing in this? I love, by the way, that he doesn't imply any of this is easy. The fact that he tells older women to encourage the younger women means he's implying this is difficult work. This isn't something that's like, oh, you're, you're not man enough to do X, Y, Z. He's saying this is hard. This is a hard and high and noble calling. And therefore, all of this, all of this is difficult. And so there's a need for encouragement, which means God sees the difficulty. God sees the hardness and says, yeah, I, yeah, I see. And I want to help you. And I want to build you up. And I want to encourage you in what God has called you to. There is a difficulty. And God is implying through the even seeing of it and recognition of it that he's there and that he's present. God, listen, especially for you uh, younger moms, God is present with you, not absent. If he speaks directly to this, it means he knows and he's present with you. And then he goes to the younger men and gives only one thing. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. That's it. One thing. He knows guys are simple. He says, and I've got 30 instructions for you young men. No, never mind. I've got one thing. I have one thing. Just do this one thing and everything else will be good. And isn't it true? Think about your lives, younger men. And again, you're a young man if you're not an old man. I think in the context, if he's speaking to younger women that have husbands and children at home, then probably if you have younger children at home, or if you're a single man then, or a dating man, then you are a uh, young man. Isn't it true that so many of our problems come from a lack of self-control? Isn't it true that if you think about your life right now, men, think about your life and the good things that you want to see happen, the good that God's calling you to, the good life that he is offering to you. Think about it. What's keeping you from it? So often, isn't it self-control? I'm not saying that's the only thing, but so often, the problems in our life or the desires that we want to step into but haven't yet, so often it comes from discipline comes from, I know the good, but yeah, I know I need to figure this out. I know I need to do this. I know I need to work on that. I know I need to work on my health. I know I need to work on my marriage. I know I need to work on my kids. I know I should start training my kids to know and love Jesus. I know I should spend less time doing this. I know I should spend more time doing that. I know I, there's all of these things that we know, but so often the problem is 
Discipline, self-control in everything. That is so often the problem because the vision oftentimes for younger men is go with the flow. Do what you want. Live it up. You're only young once. So do this thing and do that thing and be free. Don't let anything constrain you. Have fun. Play sports. Play games. Do this. Do that. It's often that is the vision of the good life for young men. It's just chill. Have fun. The good life for young men is beer and chips and sports and video games. And some of you are like, yeah, <laughs> that's the good life for young men. So oftentimes, or it's success in your career and working really hard at that. And yet even that, while is, there's more discipline and energy, there isn't a self-control over the other things in your life. And so oftentimes those guys say, yeah, I know I should spend less time doing this. I know I should spend more time with my wife and with my kids and reading my Bible. And I know I should serve in the church. I know I should work on these things, but I'm doing this, which might actually look like a bunch of energy and direction and discipline, but it's in one area, not in everything. And so oftentimes, this is so true for young men, that self-control is the thing that the vision of the culture around us says not to have. And Titus, Paul says, no. Which is why he brings up Titus to say that he is to make himself, this is really building on what he's calling the young men to, make yourself, Titus, an example of the self-controlled life, of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. He's telling Titus what to do, but he's telling Titus as a young man that his life is to be an example for these young men. What does it look like to live the self-controlled life? What does it look like to actually be serious, to have integrity and dignity in his message and in his life, to take things seriously, to see that life matters and it's not just a big game, that life, I'm not saying you can't have rest and you can't have vacation, I'm not saying that but that life matters and that it's to be taken seriously. And so therefore it should be controlled and we should live in a way that is saying it's not just a big game. Listen, you will be men. You will be controlled by something. You'll be controlled either by your past, trying to live up to something, trying to prove something, You'll be controlled by the algorithm, probably most common. You'll be controlled by what they are selling you. The products, the vision, the desires, tailored exactly to get you to consume. You'll be controlled by something, your own emotions, your own insecurities, your own fears, your sin. You'll be controlled by something. You'll be controlled by your friends, by the trends that are taking place around us, by your emotions, all sorts of things. Or you can control yourself. You can control yourself. That's what self-control means. It means we will be controlled. 
we will be led. The course of your life is going to go in a certain direction, and it will be because someone was controlling it. And it can be something else, or it can be you that says, self, I'm controlling you. That's what self-control is. That you say, my time, I'm going to manage it. I'm going to decide where my time goes. And all of this under God. So to say, my time, I'm controlling it to belong to God. My money, I'm controlling it to belong to God. I'm not just, ooh, that looks cool, click by. I'm controlling my money to belong to God. I'm controlling my time to belong to God, my family to belong to God, my marriage to belong to God. I'm controlling the gifts and skills that you have to belong to God. I'm controlling my pain to belong to God. I'm controlling my dreams, my goals to belong to God. I'm controlling everything to say, God, this belongs to you. And I'm not going to be dictated and directed by all these other things. I will control my life to belong to him. I will control my life to be filled with the good works that he has for me, to have a seriousness about his teaching and message and life that he says matters. I will control it. That is what our charge is. Listen, men, that is possible. If he teaches us this, that means we can have that. That's not some impossible standard. You can live your life controlled. He tells Titus to teach this. Later, he will say, insist on this. Don't, he says, don't let anyone disregard you to Titus. So he's saying, this is something you need to make sure that they get. This is possible. This is God's calling in our life. And let me, let me ask you, young men, wouldn't this be better? Wouldn't a life that you say, it's controlled by me under God, wouldn't that be better? This is what God has for you. Don't settle for being controlled by everything around you. Don't settle for that. This is what God has for us. This is what he made us for. And when we live that way, good will flow out of our life. It'll flow out of you to those around you. Then he speaks <clears throat> to slaves. And he says, slaves are to submit to their masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. I'm not going to do a whole uh, biblical perspective on slavery, but here's what I'll say. Just because he's speaking to slaves doesn't mean he's condoning slavery. He's speaking into a reality that existed. So he's actually honoring and valuing these people that are a part of God's family and saying, your life matters too. You're in a condition Right now, you're in a status right now that is not what God intends, and there's other places in the Bible we could go to and talk about that, but there's actually a deep honor and value that's implied when he's saying, I'm speaking into your life also. So to speak about something doesn't mean he's condoning something. It means this is reality, and so I'm going to speak to these people that also belong to God. And for us, because you're not a slave, we can think about this even just in how it relates to our work. And what's the vision that oftentimes we have in our work? Oftentimes, it's just to kind of get by. As long as I can get my paycheck and get by, good to go. Which is why often the temptation might be to disrespect or to steal. Because we're not really there to serve. 
we are there for us and what's the minimum I can do to get by. And so who cares if I steal a stapler or who cares if I steal, you know, a little bit of this or a little bit of time or a little bit of whatever perks that I have or yeah, why not complain? Why not be negative about my boss or coworkers? He says, actually, the calling that is given to us isn't to just get by and do the minimum. It's actually to seek to please and to demonstrate, which means to show utter faithfulness. Is that how you think about your job? Do you go into your job saying, I want to actually show up to please, to seek to please? I want to show up to serve. I want to show up and demonstrate faithfulness. I want it to be true that they look at my life and see, wow, how do you have this work ethic? How is it that you reveal and show all of this? How is it that you are so faithful? That is the calling that he gives to us. Listen, your job, this, it is not just in this room that your faith matters or counts. Your faith doesn't stop here. It begins here. And then we go out into the world, into our families, into our marriages, into our friendships, into our jobs, and we have callings there. So when we look at all of this stuff, what do you see? You see this, and I kind of said it. If God speaks to all of this, here's what it means. All of your life matters. Do you see that? All of your life matters and every one of you matters. Whether you're older or younger, God has a vision for your life. All of your life, not just Sunday, not just when you're doing a Bible study or an LTG. All of your life matters and God wants us to live his vision in all of our life. He has a vision for all of your life, which is why every stage of our life, even the fact that Paul kind of goes through these different categories, it means every stage of our life, we should be asking, what does it mean in this season of life to follow Jesus, to walk with Jesus? What does it mean as a mom, as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a worker? We should be taking all of those things to him and saying, what does it mean in this season or in this role or in this area to, to be faithful to him and to honor him? We should bring all of our life to him and ask him to speak into it. And it means he's with you in the middle of all of your life. If God has a vision for all of that, it means he's with us in the middle of all of that. Now, I've got two more things. It won't, that's, that's the longest portion, so don't worry. But what happens when we live like this? Call this the pool of the good life. What happens when we live like this? Why is it that he has a concern about these things? And we've already kind of seen these sections that he says. He says, God's word will not be slandered. He says, then they won't have anything bad to say about us. He says to the slaves specifically, they adorn the teaching of God. All of these things are saying that when you live in this way, it actually shows something of who God is. It helps people to see that God is good, that God is who he says he is. God's word won't be slandered. God's vision is good. There's nothing bad to say about you or about God or the message because it's revealed in your life as beautiful. The, it will adorn the teaching of God or this word is kosmeo in the Greek, which is where we get our word cosmetics from, 
which is to say your life will actually be this beautiful thing, this glorious makeup, you know, whatever makeup stuff. What's the, what was the thing? Con- contouring. Your life will, you know, show this beautiful thing of how amazing and beautiful God is and his word is and his teaching is. So this is the pool of the good life, which means that as we live this way, at the beginning I said there's this but, right? There's this teaching, but live this way. We're called to live counterculturally, to live different from the world around us, which might be offensive to some. They might look at our lives and our beliefs and our values and go, that's backwards, that's wrong, that's offensive. But it also has the power to pull people to see how beautiful God is, how true his message is. That if we live faithfully to what we're called to, it shows the truth and the beauty and the wisdom of who God is and what he says. So he says that in the middle of our life, it's not just about morality. It's not just do these things because you're supposed to. It actually is about us leading other people to see who he is. That your everyday choices in your marriage, with your children, in your job, have a power to draw people to him. Don't you want that? Don't you have friends or coworkers or neighbors or even our children? And we say, I want them to believe that this is the good life. He says that as we live this way, it has a magnetic pool that can attract people to see God. And then the last thing is the power of the good life. How do we live this way? How do we live like this? How do we become back to the beginning? How do we become zealots for this life? This is the picture of the good life that God gives. It's not, sometimes we think about, um, you know, like I need to change the world. Let me be anti-self-esteem for a moment. You don't need to change the world and you're not going to change the world. You are not a world changer. You are normal. There you go. But here's what's amazing. That's not what God's call is on your life. God's call is to change your world, your marriage, your family, your job, the people around you. That's manageable. That's good. That's beautiful. And it means everything you're doing matters. You don't have to live under some burden of, I've got to change the world. And if I don't do this and okay, maybe some of you are Mother Teresa. Awesome. Maybe some of you are Martin Luther King Jr. Great. But most of us, we're just called to change our world and that matters. And yet it can still be hard. We're called to be zealous for the good of normal everyday life that God calls us to. But how? How do we do that? How do we get the power to become zealous like this? Because it's easy to feel overwhelmed, to feel we can't do it, to feel we don't know how to do it, to maybe just give up or not try at all or just try harder and then not work and then try harder again. Here's what he tells us at the very end. He says that there is a power available to you to make you a zealous person for the good, normal life that God has for you. There is a power that you can have, and it's grace. Here's how he ends it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us, or this word is training us, to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, so to not live this way and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he says that the power is this grace. He says, here's all of this vision of the good life that I am calling you to, that God has for you. And there's a power that can make it so you can live that way. And he says, the grace of God has appeared, instructing us, teaching us, training us to live in this way. And then at the end, kind of the conclusion of all this, look at, look at how if you see this, this will help you, change you to live the good life. He gave himself for us. That's to say Jesus came to this earth. He substituted himself in our place for our sin. He died for us. He gave himself to us. He said, I'm giving myself to you. I'm not just giving teaching to you. I'm not just giving things to you. I'm giving myself to you, for you. He gave himself for us. What great love. The more that we know that, the more that we see that, we want to live the good life. We trust him. We know that he's good. He says he gave himself for us to redeem us, to cleanse us, a people for his own possession. That means we are a new kind of people. He brought us in, no longer to be this, but to be this, to be made new, to be cleansed, to belong to him. That's a new identity that he gives to you. He says, I did something then in giving myself for you. I'm doing something now. Your whole identity has shifted. You're not like that anymore. We shouldn't buy into the lies around us and the messages around us. That's not who you are. You are a people for his possession. That's who you are. You are someone that belongs to him, that's been cleansed by him, redeemed by him. He says, that's who you are. And then he also talks about what, what he will do when he talks about him, that we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, that he will come back one day. Which means if we have that future orientation, we can say, even if life now, I feel like I miss out on certain things or don't have certain things or I'm denying certain things, kind of the worldly lusts and all that stuff, I know that there's a future for me and, and thus I'm full. I have a God that has provided everything that I need. Here's what this does. It instructs us or trains us. That's what it does. The more that we focus on those things, it trains us to be a zealot for good works. The more that we, I, we watched a Rocky II last night with my kids because that's what you should do. Um, and I, the best part of all sports movies, but especially the Rocky movies, is the like 15 minute training montage, you know, where the music is playing and he's just doing one-handed push-ups and he's doing all that. It's just like, yes! And that training idea is to get ready for what you have to do here. You have to be trained. You can't just step into it. And what he says is God's grace trains us for the good life that he's called us to. We have to have our training montage of remembering God's grace to us over and over and over again to step into being a mom, to step into being an older man, to step into being a self-controlled young man to step into your job. We need the training that gets us beyond where we can be by ourselves. 
the grace of God, what he's done for me, his love for me, his purchasing of me, his cleansing of me, his possessing of me, leads me to the good life that he has. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And when we take communion, that's what we are remembering. We're remembering that each of us wants the good life. And what if it was true that we weren't dry, that we weren't apathetic, that we weren't just kind of forcing ourselves to do good, but we weren't actually zealous for it? What if that was true? What if there was a heartfelt passion, whatever stage, whatever role of our life? Paul shows us what this looks like. He gives us the vision, the reason, the training that we need. And when we take communion, we're remembering that grace, the grace that has appeared to us, the grace that appeared for us. We're remembering his body broken for us, his blood shed for us to make us, his people, zealous for good works. So as you take communion, pray. Confess your heart to God. If, if this is your first time uh, here, you just take communion when, when you are ready uh, after praying. And you just pray and confess to God where you feel like, I haven't lived this vision of the good life. I've actually bought into another vision of the good life. And ask God to help you to be zealous. Ask him to do a heart change, not just an action change. Ask him to give you a heart that is a zealot for good works. Ask him to make his grace real to your heart right now. That it may train you for what he has for you. There is more for each of our lives. Paul ends it with saying, don't let anyone disregard you. So I just want to say that right now. Don't disregard me. Paul is telling Titus, this pastor, to not let his church disregard him. So I transfer that now and say, don't disregard me. Not because it's me, but because it's God's word. God has spoken to you. Listen to me. God has spoken to you. If you're an older woman, an older man, a younger man, a younger woman, God has spoken to you. Don't disregard what he's saying. Be encouraged by what he's saying and be rebuked by what he's saying. And let his grace train your heart. Let his forgiveness become real. Let his possession become real. Let his cleansing become real. Let what he's done for you to give himself to you become real. That will change all of us to be a zealot for good works. Father, I thank you for your grace that you give. I thank you that you, that you are trustworthy as the one with the vision for the good life. God, correct our vision and train our hearts to know you, to love you, to worship you, to see how good, how gracious you are. Train our hearts, Lord, even now, even as we take communion and even as we sing, God, train our hearts to see your grace. In your name, Jesus, we pray.